Good to see you all. Uh, feels like I experienced all four seasons today. Uh, we had a bit of hail, a bit of rain, a bit of, sun bit of sunshine. Um, yeah. So um, just a few things. Uh, if you are new, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. Uh, if you are new here, it's great to have you with us. Uh, stick around after. Uh, we'd love to have a chat with you and get to know you and welcome you into our family. Uh, it, it's a privilege to be able to worship with you together uh, if you are new. And um, this is a last minute announcement. It didn't get put on the slides, but the welcoming team has gone to the liberty of uh, organizing snacks today as well. Uh, we had snacks last week, snacks again this week. Um, I think we're going to actually make this a weekly thing, uh, just an opportunity for us, an excuse for us to have a bit of extra chocolate and lollies and just have a, a chat with each other and enjoy each other's company. Uh, a few other things as well. Um, I don't think they hear now, uh, but Mike and Eleanor and Andrew Shim and Esther, um, their kids uh, for Evelyn, for Mike and Eleanor's daughter, and I think it was Caleb, um, not Isaac, but Caleb for Andrew and Esther. They had a dedication service and ceremony today for their kid. And for those of you that don't know what a dedication service is, it, it's kind of like a, um, a ceremony where the parents will stand in the witness of the entire church with their children, and they make an oath and a pledge uh, in front of the whole church that they will bear the responsibility of not just physically raising their child, but spiritually raising them. It is a very special ceremony, so please congratulate them if you do see them. Um, one thing that Presbyterian churches do as well is they actually include the entire congregation as part of the ceremony, which I think hopefully when I get ordained in the near future, uh, I'll be able to incorporate here as well. And what I mean by that is that the parents are the spiritual overseers of the children. They'll disciple the children, help them to grow to know and love the Lord Jesus. Uh, but the congregation, because we are a spiritual family, the congregation as a family has a responsibility to share as well. So not just the parents mentoring and discipling the children, but that we all play a role uh, in protecting this child and uh, helping nurture their growth with the Lord Jesus. So I just want to share that with you. Uh, congratulate them when you, when you, whenever you see them or you get a chance. Uh, so why don't we jump into today's word? Uh, and the passage comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Uh, just a disclaimer, um, there might be some sensitive topics that I will cover in this sermon, uh, and it's it's just stuff that inevitably we will touch on in the passage as well. Um, so that's just a, a bit of warning. Um, all right, so the word of God reads, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted, him put, uh, wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John 
knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today we'll be looking at the next passage in our series in Mark, and we'll touch on some very violent uh, events that take place uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be touching on some sensitive topics uh, in a sexual sense. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and be able to come away, even through a passage like this, hearing your voice, having our hearts shaped to know what it is that you desire of us, even through a passage like this. And so, Lord, I pray that you will prepare good soil in the hearts of all who listen. Grant me unction and empower me with your Holy Spirit. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A few years ago, uh, I was invited to preach at a youth conference uh, at a church. Uh, I won't actually name which church, uh, just for the sake of the person involved in this illustration. Um, but this church had a lot of students that I was very familiar with. I was, I was quite close with pretty much all of them. Uh, and I'd known a lot of them since they were in primary, and now they were, you know, junior and senior high school students. And this camp, it went for about three days, and it was a very blessed, blessed time. Uh, I enjoyed preaching to them, preaching God's word to them. I enjoyed the conversations I had with many of the students uh, over lunch and dinner. They had a lot of fantastic questions about the Bible, very deep questions about God. But at one point, uh, before one of the night rallies was meant, meant to begin, uh, one of the female students ran up to me, and she, she looked desperate, and she, she just had panic in her eyes, and she said, Pastor Jay, I need your help. I don't know what to do. And she held her phone out to me. And I looked down at her phone, and I was trying to make out what it was that she was showing me. And it was a Facebook page that had CCTV footage of her and her friend. Uh, it was the Crime Stoppers Facebook page. And she'd been caught shoplifting uh, at a, her local Westfield. And she'd been caught on camera, and it had been reported to the local police, and Crime Stoppers had uploaded it onto the Facebook page 
with the do you know this person? If so, call Crime Stoppers now. Um, and I was quite speechless, to be honest. Because uh, what do you say in a situation like that? But I looked at her and I could see the panic in her eyes. Uh, the post had come up while she was at camp and she was terrified. She didn't know what to do. And so as a pastor, it's like, well, what do you say in a situation like that? And so I said to her, you know what? Look, as soon as this camp ends, you need to go to the local police station and you need to turn yourself in. And I told her, look, as, as a speaker at this camp, I'm happy to speak to your pastor and we're, I'm happy for the three of us to go together. We'll, we'll, we'll accompany you to your local police station. And she initially refused because she was scared. And I looked down at the photos again, and they really, really, it was such damning evidence. Like, they caught everything. Like, they caught her looking around, like, scanning to make sure no one's watching. They caught her, like, reaching, and then they caught her putting it into her pocket and her bag. Like, it was like, there, there was no way you could, you know, try to come up with an explanation or an alibi. They'd captured everything. And so I looked at it, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you're really screwed. You've, you don't have a choice. You need to go to the police station. And you know what? I, I get it. She was scared. But as I spoke to her and tried to give some counseling, I realized that what she was scared about wasn't so much that she broke the law. It wasn't even about going to the police station. What she was scared about was people finding out about it. Her parents finding out about it, the deacons and the elders of her church finding out about it, and what they would all think about her if they found out that she had been caught shoplifting. And I share this illustration with you because in today's passage, we encounter an individual who kind of undergoes a similar journey where they're consumed by this dilemma of what, you know, what are people going to think about me if I do this particular thing? Now, last week, uh, we saw that Jesus commissioned and sent out his 12 disciples over the short-term mission trip, and he sends them out to emulate the ministry, his ministry, whilst empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in the opening verses of today's passage, we see that the result of this commissioning and Jesus' ministry was that all this news made its way into the ear of a man by the name of King Herod. And this name, Herod, appears a lot of times throughout the Gospels. Uh, and we're probably familiar with the Herod that appeared at the birth of Jesus in the Gospels, the one that wanted to have Jesus killed. Uh, this is a different Herod in today's passage. He's known as Herod Antipas. So the Herod that wanted Jesus killed as a baby, uh, he was known as Herod the Great. And uh, the Herod in today's passage is actually his son, Herod Antipas. And today's passage refers to Herod Antipas as King Herod, which technically that's what he was. He was a king. Uh, but when it boiled down to it, this title of king was really, that's all it was. It was just the title. Because you know what, when we think of kings, and I watched the coronation of King Charles yesterday, when we think of kings, we think of someone that has supreme power and authority over their kingdom, don't we? You know, someone that's in control. No one is above him. But 
when we look to Herod Antipas, or King Herod in today's passage, uh, and we look at the history of Israel, what you'll find is that Herod, this Herod, was more of like a puppet king. Um, he ruled over Galilee and a few other regions, but at the end of the day, these regions didn't belong to him. He had the title of king, but these kingdoms weren't his. They belonged to the Roman Empire. Uh, and today's passage delves a bit further into the character of King Herod. And if you unpackage it, unpackage today's verses, and if you do it a bit, bit of background study into history, Israel's history, uh, what you'll actually find is that King Herod was actually a very sick, perverted individual. Uh, and this is where I, uh, that, that disclaimer comes in, where I, where I said that you know, this is quite a sensitive passage to touch on. And what I mean, like if you look at verses 17 and 18, it says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, history tells us that Herod Antipas, the Herod of today's passage, he already had a wife. But he ended up visiting his half-brother Philip. And he sees his wife. And what he does is he dumps his wife, like his, his first wife, because he sees his half-brother Philip's wife. And he commits adultery with his brother's wife, convinces her to divorce her brother, oh, his brother Philip, so that he can marry her. He wants her to leave her husband, which is his brother, so that she can marry him. Now, in case you're thinking, oh, poor Philip, my half-brother, poor guy, he lost his wife to you know, Herod. Uh, I want to make it clear that both Herod Antipas and Philip, they were both sick, perverted individuals. Because remember Herod the Great that I mentioned earlier, the, the one at the earlier uh, beginning of the Gospels, the one that wanted Jesus killed as a, as a baby, the father of Herod Antipas. Um, he was both the father of Herod Antipas and Philip, hence why they're half-brothers. But Herodias, the woman that's at the center of this, she was actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great, meaning that Philip, her original husband, was actually her uncle. She married her uncle, or the uncle married his niece, and Herod Antipas, in today's passage, convinced his niece to divorce her uncle so that she could marry me, your, your other uncle. Like, not me, but like you get what I mean. This made her both the niece of Herod Antipas and Philip. And so Herod Antipas, he commits adultery with Herodias, who is his niece. And he commits adultery with his niece, dumps his wife, steals the niece from his half-brother so he can make her his wife. And then they get married. And what he did after that was he tried to sweep it all under the rug. Because this kind of behavior, it's, not, it's not, like it was condemned by Jewish law. Like it's condemned by just society in general. Like everyone would look down on something like that. It's like something out of Jerry Springer. Do, do you guys know Jerry Springer? Some of you, some, the older people know Jerry Springer. But King Herod tried to sweep all these details under the rug. He's like, maybe if we just sweep it under the rug, everyone will forget about it and we can move on with our lives. Uh, but there was one problem. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist was really the final prophet, the final great prophet of God, and he makes it his mission. Very dangerous thing to do. He makes it his mission 
to call out the sins of King Herod to his face and in front of everyone. As we saw in verses 17 and 18, uh, John the Baptist was a wild man. He wasn't a guy that held his tongue. He wasn't a guy that held back. And he called out Herod in front of everyone in public saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the result was that John was arrested and he was thrown in prison. And it seemed like he was thrown in prison at the request of his wife and niece, Herodias. Now, when we read a passage like this, uh, we might be tempted to think of this niece, Herodias, as like a victim of her circumstances. Um, and she's just like the victim of these pedophile kings. Uh, but the reality is that Herodias was actually quite evil to the core herself. Uh, in today's passage, we find out that, you know, uh, when John the Baptist calls Herod out and Herodias out for their sins, and ultimately calls them to repentance. It sets the wheels in motion for her. Because she sets out to bring about John the Baptist's death. Verse 19, it says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But here's where it gets interesting. Because we learned in verse 19, she wanted him dead. Like not hurt, not like just silence, dead. She wanted him murdered. But the passage also tells us that she couldn't do it. And she couldn't do it because of her husband. Of all people, it was her husband that prevented her from killing John the Baptist. Because if you read verse 19 and 20, it says, you know, verse 19 and saying that she could not, she could not kill him. Why? Because verse 20, for Herod, her husband, her uncle, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he, her husband, kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he, Herod, heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? For Herodias, she hated the fact that despite all their efforts to sweep all these sins, adultery, incest, to sweep it all under the rug so that everyone forget would forget, she hated the fact that it was constantly being exposed and called out by John the Baptist in public. She resented the fact that this wild, untamed man, who looked probably looked a bit crazy, if you read a description of what John looked like, he looked like a wild, insane man, that this man was calling her to repentance, her, the queen, to repentance. It annoyed her, and her response was to try and orchestrate his murder. But for Herod, I said this was interesting. I say it's interesting because for Herod, he didn't want John killed. In fact, if I were a betting man, I would say that the reason that Herod had John thrown into prison was to actually protect him. Because Herodias' wife wanted him dead. She probably would have paid an assassin to kill him and end his life. And so Herod probably threw John in prison for his own good, to, to protect him from his wife and hopefully even appease the anger of his wife. So it's like, well, you wanted him silent, silenced. You wanted him to stop calling us out in public. He's, he's in prison now. He's not going to hurt anyone. He's not going to tell anyone anything. Who's going to hear him in the dungeon? And he probably did it to appease 
his wife. But it's also interesting because Herod, as much as he was a perverted individual, and as much as he probably hated as well having his sins caught out to his face, the passage also tells us that Herod feared John. And he feared him. Because despite all of his sin and his corruption, Herod deep down, when he saw John, he understood who John was. He understood that John was a holy and a righteous man. He understood that John was a messenger of God. And so ultimately any message that John the Baptist had to convey to him, even if it is a message of condemnation, that at the end of the day, this message of condemnation was from none other than God himself. That's why verse 20 tells us that he was perplexed. He was at a loss for words. That's probably a more accurate rendition of what, what, what it means in the Greek. He was at a loss for words. And we're often at a loss for words, I think, when we feel a conviction over our sins. I don't know about you, but if someone rebukes me, if my wife rebukes me and says, you should change this, or you shouldn't do this anymore, often I'm at a loss for words. And I think my, 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 my initial gut reaction, and it's not just me, our initial gut reaction is when people rebuke us, our default reaction is to get a bit defensive, isn't it? Like if my wife is like, you're stubborn, and like, no, I'm not. <laughs> That's a bit, bit, bit of a contradiction in itself. But why do we get defensive? We get defensive because I think so often people, all people, are blind to their own sins. We're blind to our own flaws. Because you know what? It's easy to look at someone else and pick out all of their flaws. It's easy to look at someone else and pick out and list all their shortcomings. Even if someone goes out on an endeavor to do something for God, it's easy to criticize them, especially when things go wrong, what they should have done. But the moment God uses another person to critique us or rebuke us, our immediate default fleshly response is to go into defense mode or at least have Herod's reaction. Be perplexed and be at a loss for words. But if by the grace of God we do let down our walls, we do switch out of defense mode, then I think we have a more likelihood of not to defend ourselves, but to actually stop and think and ask ourselves is there truth to this? If my wife tells me you're stubborn, to ask myself, not, no, I'm not, but to reflect on my character and ask myself, is there truth to this? And for Herod in today's passage, I think genuinely he was going through this journey, through this process, because after a bit of time, even though he was perplexed, the passage says that he heard him gladly. There is something very special. And I think healing, when we hear the voice of God through his word and the spirit of God moving to bring us to a place of conviction over our own sins, when the Holy Spirit reveals our sins to us and shows us what we need to change, I think that's a very special thing and it's by the grace of God 
And so for Herod, he was going through this journey and it seemed like he was making progress. It seemed like he was so close to coming to a place of repentance. But then came his birthday. And verses 21 to 23 says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give to you. And he vowed to her, Whenever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Now I mentioned earlier that Herod was a sexual deviant, demonstrated pedophilic tendencies, committed adultery with the wife of his brother, who was his niece, probably much younger than him, had his niece divorce her husband and marry him. And it even goes beyond this, beyond Herodias. And the reason I say this is because, you know, did this banquet, this birthday banquet that he was running, um, he'd invited all the richest people in his kingdom. He invited all the military commanders, so all the, you know, the four, is it three or four, five star, I don't know what star, the, the top tier generals and the local politicians. He invited all of them. And then it talks about this dance that his daughter, it wasn't his biological daughter, it was his stepdaughter, so his half-brother's biological daughter that he adopted as his stepdaughter. He gets his stepdaughter to do a dance for him and his guests. And I, I just want to make it clear, and again, this is where we come to the sensitive part that I mentioned earlier. This wasn't a cute dance. Like, when I was younger, um, I, I really liked Michael Jackson as a kid. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Michael Jackson sing and perform was on TV, the 1997 Thriller concert that was broadcasted on TV. And it was the first time I ever saw The Moonwalk. I think the younger guys probably don't know, might not know who Michael Jackson is, but he did this moonwalk. It kind of looked like you were just gliding on stage. You're like, it looks like you're walking forward, but you're moving backwards. It like YouTube, it looks pretty cool. Um, and I remember when I first saw the moonwalk, I was like, that's so cool. I have to learn how to do that. And I tried doing the moonwalk, and I, I, even to this day, I can't do it. But back when I was a kid, I did this stupid imitation of the moonwalk. And what do your parents do when you do something like that? They're like, wow. Wow, that's like, oh, that's amazing. Where did you learn? And as a kid, you're like, oh, I must, I must be doing it. I must, I must really be doing it. And so when guests would come over, they'd be like, JJ, show everyone your Michael Jackson moonwalk. And you do this stupid thing, and then the, you know, the guests look at you like there's something wrong with you. I still can't do it to this day. I watch YouTube tutorials. I still can't do it. But the guests and the parents probably find that thing cute. And maybe you guys did it as well. Your parents would be like, why don't you dance or sing or do something in front of the guests to entertain our guests? And the guests find it cute when the kids put on a performance. But that wasn't what was going on here. It wasn't a cute dance that Herodias' daughter was doing for Herod. The reality was that this dance that she performed was a sexually provocative dance. To put it bluntly, by today's standards, it probably would have equated to something of a combination of a striptease and the lap dance that she did for her father. And her father, in response, he must have brought in some level of sexual gratification because he says, you know what, 
you've made me happy, a happy man on my birthday. Tell me anything you want and I'll give it to you. Ironically, he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And the reason I say it's ironic is because remember what I said earlier, it wasn't his kingdom to give. He ruled over Galilee, but Galilee technically didn't belong to him. It belonged to the Roman Empire. But nonetheless, her immediate response was to go to Herodias, her mother, which would actually suggest that her mother had actually orchestrated this lap dance. And the mother tells her daughter, I want you to go and I want you to ask your dad for the head of John the Baptist. I want you to tell your dad, I did this lap dance for you. I stripped in front of you. I want you to cut off the head of this prophet of God, the cousin of Jesus. Now, Mark gives us a subtle hint in his gospel that the level of evil that defined the heart of Herodias, uh, it seemed like it wasn't just limited to her. Because, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's easy to kind of look at Herodias as a victim. She wasn't a victim. And in this scenario, it's easy to look at Herodias's daughter as a victim. She's not a victim either. Because there is a very subtle detail that Mark includes in verse 24 to suggest that Herodias' daughter was just as twisted and evil as her mum. Because remember that the mum, she asked for a gruesome request. She just asked for his head, just the head cut off. But Mark's very careful to include a detail. When the daughter relays the request to Herod, because she doesn't repeat it verbatim. She doesn't say, I want the head of John the Baptist. Almost like with a sick, twisted sense of humor. She says, I want his head on a dining plate. Isn't that a bit sick? Verses 26 to 28 says, And the king was exceedingly sorry. This was the response. Herod was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter or a dining plate and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now, I mentioned earlier it's easy to feel sorry for Herodias and see her as a victim. She's not a victim. It's easy to feel sorry for Herodias' daughter to see her as a victim. She's not a victim. And in this scenario, it's easy to feel sorry for Herod as well and see him as a victim because it says he was exceedingly sorry. Like, we read this and we're almost like, oh, the poor guy. He just, like, through a choice of bad words, he's put himself in this, this situation that he can't get over. Poor Herod, he's stuck. He's given his word. What can he do? Poor Herod. And it's easy to look at Herod as a victim. But I want to make it clear, Herod is no victim either. Because Herod, as a victim, would only make sense if Herod had a strong moral compass. But let me put it into perspective for you about everything that's happened up until this point. Number one, Herod has committed adultery with his brother's wife. Number two, Herod dumped his wife. He divorced his wife so he could marry a child who was his brother's wife. Number three, the wife he stole wasn't just a child, wasn't just his, his 
brother's wife. It was his niece. Number four, he prostitutes his own stepdaughter on his birthday by receiving a striptease and a lap dance for her. And what's more, he gets her to do it in front of everyone, the most powerful people in the land. This is not a guy who cares about morals. He's not a guy that's a victim. In fact, if Herod were someone that cared about morals, his reaction shouldn't have been to keep his word. It shouldn't have been to carry out this promise. Because think about it. You know, we, we, we've got a lot of babies in this ministry, but if they were to grow into you know, young girls, and let's say that one of the parents said to the young girls in FLM, for your birthday or whatever, you did this, I'll give you whatever you want. Tell me what you want. Nothing I'll withhold from you. If that little girl went up to her dad and said, can you cut off Pastor Jay's head? His sermons are a bit too long. The natural reaction of any normal dad will be a reaction of horror. And you'd probably question your daughter, who taught you to think like this? Like, where where is all this coming from? But for Herod, that wasn't his reaction, was it? Because this is a guy that's lacking in any form of a moral compass. And for Herod, we might think he was so upset because he was worried about the integrity of his word and his promise. But the reality was that he wasn't worried about he wasn't worried about this. What he was worried about was what people would think about him. And so having beheaded John's body, John's disciples then come, they take the body without the head. Like their rabbi, their teacher, the guy that they'd been discipled by, they take his headless body without the head. Because where's the head? Herodias has it. The daughter gave it to the mum, and she probably kept it like a trophy. And his disciples buried this headless corpse. And it seems like a, a tragic and gruesome end for the very man that Jesus himself describes as the greatest man ever to be born in Matthew 11, 11. But that's how today's passage ends, with the seemingly tragic end to the life of John the Baptist. Now, there's a few applications that I thought about unpackaging and focusing on in this sermon. Uh, However, I've chosen instead to focus on the tragic ending to this passage. And I don't know if you've seen the title for today's sermon. Uh, I don't know if you uh, snap that QR code and have a look. Uh, But the title of today's sermon is not the tragedy of John the Baptist, but the tragedy of King Herod. Now, this ending to this passage, when I say it's tragic, I'm not talking about tragic in in the sense of a death, because the only person that died in today's passage was John the Baptist. But what we find in today's passage is that there is a spiritual death that occurs. And it's the spiritual death of King Herod. Because we've already established that Herod was a corrupted individual. He was a sick, incestuous, perverted pedophile. There's no other way to put it. And he preyed on his niece, received sexual gratification by receiving a lap dance from his stepdaughter. And for Herod, he really was the embodiment of just a perverted scumbag. 
And yet, even for an individual like Herod, there was a sense of hope in his life. Because for all of his perverted sinful desires, and for all of the terrible decisions that he made in life, it seemed in today's passage that he was not outside of grace. It seemed like God would continually extend a hand of grace to him in the form of John the Baptist. There was a sense in which God extended a hand of hope out to Herod Antipas because John kept appearing in his life, didn't he? And he kept appearing to call out his sins and call him to repentance. And I say that this was an arm of hope or a hand of hope because it seems that Herod responded somewhat to this because he tried to protect John the Baptist. He had him thrown in prison for his protection and he seemed to take pleasure in hearing John the Baptist rebuke him. There seemed a sense in which John's message, which was God's message, was causing somewhat of a stirring in Herod's heart. But like I mentioned earlier, one of the most difficult things that a person can come to terms with is the reality of their own sins and flaws. Because it's always easy to hold up the mirror to someone else's face, to expose their sins and their flaws and their shortcomings to their face. It's easy for us to try and assume the role of John the Baptist in people's lives and rebuke and have a critical spirit towards them. But as much as we despise Herod, as much as he was a perverted scumbag, the broad reality of the gospel in its wider context is that we should be a people that identify with Herod. Not in a perverted sense, but in the sense and context of sin. Because just like Herod, whether it's through the weekly praises in worship, whether it's through the preaching or even the individual personal meditation upon God's word, what are you going to do when the Holy Spirit stirs your heart? What are you going to do when you feel the Spirit of God? I mentioned last week that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to perform miracles, but conviction of sin. What are you going to do when God brings you to a place of conviction over secret sin in your life? When there is habitual sin that you keep repenting of, keep repenting of, and you struggle to get victory over it, what are you going to do when for the upteenth time God brings it to your face? and says, something needs to change. What are you going to do about sin, secret sin, that you are ashamed for the world to see? Where like Herod, you're trying to sweep it under the rug, but God keeps bringing it to the surface. What are you going to do? And the reason I gave this sermon the title I did, The Tragedy of King Herod, was because for Herod, he was so close. He was so close. God stirred his heart. He felt a genuine Holy Spirit-led conviction over his sin. There was something real there. But when the Holy Spirit kept bringing him conviction over his sin, when John the Baptist, through John the Baptist, God held up the mirror up to Herod's face and brought to the surface that Herod had been trying to sweep away all the sins, the adultery, the incest. Instead of being consumed by what God desired of him. 
Instead of being consumed and pursuing the reaction that God wanted of him, what happened to Herod? He became consumed by what people thought about him. Kind of like that student I shared earlier. And I'm going to be blatantly honest. I was, I was a troubled kid as well. I shoplifted as a kid as well. I still candy from the local news agency. But you'd go in, and if you go in with the intention to steal something, I remember, and I'm sure this, this same student did the same thing. You look around, is anyone watching me? You look in front of you, look behind you to the side, you scan to make sure knowing no one is watching. You don't want anyone to be watching when this crime is committed. Often that's how we treat sin. I don't want people to find out. We look around and we consume ourselves with looking around to make sure no one knows, all the while forgetting that instead of looking to our sides, that we should be looking up because the crime ultimately is being committed against a holy God. And kind of like the student, when I had that conversation with her, it was apparent that she wasn't sorry for her sins. She wasn't sorry for shoplifting. She was actually she was, she was sorry that she got caught. That's what it came down to. And because she was sorry she got caught, she was worried about what people would think about her when they found out. And for Herod, he was consumed. He wasn't worried about the integrity of his word. He wasn't worried. About, he was worried about what people would think about him, what they would say about him. He was worried about his reputation. And so his reaction was to murder and execute the one man who God was using to extend the hand of grace into his life. The one man that God was using to shine hope into his life. John the Baptist. It was a tragic ending for John the Baptist. The greatest man who ever lived dies a gruesome death. But it was an even greater tragedy. Because on that day, the moment Herod has John the Baptist's head cut off, it marked the ending for King Herod. It marked the day of his spiritual death. Because just like Herod, the moment that any man cuts grace out of his life, the moment any man makes peace with sin, the moment any man becomes indifferent to the word of God and the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit is trying to lay upon your heart, what you are effectively doing is you're slapping away God's hand of grace that he's extended out to you and it will mark the beginning of a downward tragic spiral where your heart will become hardened day by day, more and more as time progresses. And that Holy Spirit stirring, that conviction of sin that you once felt, that felt very real, will actually start to fade away into nothingness. And if you read through the Gospels, especially Luke's Gospel, you'll find that after the execution of John the Baptist, as Jesus' ministry progresses, we encounter Herod Antipas again towards the end of Luke's Gospel. And when we encounter him at the end of Luke's Gospel, we find someone where this hardening of heart, this process has just reached its ex ex extreme completeness. 
A man who feels no longer any conviction of sin. Because, you know, when he, when he looked to John the Baptist, he at least recognized this was a man of God. Who was John the Baptist? He was the messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so when Herod looked at John the Baptist, he at least recognized, even though I'm not coming to a place of repentance yet, this is a man of God. What he's saying is from God. He is the messenger of the Messiah. And it's causing a stirring in my heart. But after killing the messenger of the Messiah and in Luke 23, when the Messiah himself stands before him, he has no recognition of who this man is. His heart has been hardened, completely hardened. He's spiritually dead and spiritually blind. And his response when he sees the Messiah himself in Luke 23, 11, is that Herod, with his soldiers, treated him, Jesus, with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. This is the tragic end for Herod Antipas, a man who slapped away God's hand of grace, whose heart was forever hardened to the gospel and had become forever spiritually blind. Where once... At one point in time, he recognized a messenger of God. Now, does not recognize God himself, the second person of the Trinity, when he's standing before him. And you know where it all began for Herod? It began with secret sin. Unconfessed sin. Sin that he tried to sweep under the rug unrepentant sin. And like I mentioned, there were so many other things I could have spoken about in today's passage, but I felt, especially because we're doing communion today, that it would be appropriate to zero in on this. And I don't know where all of you are at spiritually. I'm doing my best to catch up with many of you as, you, as I can. Um, but I think all people at some point struggle with secret sin, habitual sin, Sin that we struggle to get victory over. But we always have to keep pressing forward, trusting in that hand of grace that God extends out to us. And even if it is an infinite amount of times, to infinitely place that sin at the foot of the cross through repentance and trust in the power of His grace so that we never slap away the hand of grace that God extends and that the story of our life will not be marked by the same tragic ending that befell Herod Antipas, the man who once had grace extended to him. Let's pray. Father, it's so difficult to look into the mirror of our own lives and to see our sin for what it is. It's very easy to look at other people and to see what they should fix, to look at their flaws, to see what they should have done or how they should have done things better or how they should have chosen their words and their actions more carefully. But Lord, we pray because you call us to a place of humility that we would always be able to look into the mirror of your word with a humble heart so that when we see a command 
or a rebuke or an exhortation in Scripture, that before we think of anyone else, that we would use it as a mirror for our own life. That we would come to a place of humility and humbly ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us anything that displeases you and for strength to continue to press forward in repentance so that we might purge sin, secret sin, unrepentant sin from our lives. But Lord, we pray that as we go through this process, that if there is secret sin, that we would give Satan no foothold in our life, that we would not allow him to use guilt and shame to bury us in the grave. But that guilt and shame through our understanding of the gospel would pave a way for joy and celebration because we know of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his mighty name that we trust and we pray. Amen.